Hey everybody, this is Warren Sharp, NFL analyst over at Sharp Football Analysis. I want to welcome you to the Ringer Gambling Show. Join me on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays each week during the NFL season with guests Chris Vernon, Ben Solak, and Joe House to guide you through the NFL betting landscape. We'll be talking spreads, game totals, parlays, player props, futures, and much, much more. Be sure to follow the Ringer Gambling Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Full Go, presented by FanDuel. The playoff action is heating up, and with FanDuel, you can bet on everything from the NBA Finals MVP to who's going to lift the Stanley Cup. And right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, or SGPs as the kids like to call them, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together... We're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Chicago everywhere. Check it. What up, world? You're listening to The Full Goal with Jason Golf, presented by The Ringer, a Spotify original. Yeah. Welcome on in to episode 22 of the Full Go Podcast with Jason Golf, brought to you by The Ringer. And of course, Spotify is the gang, and we're all here, right? We're, we're in this weird time where it's like, it's rainy, it's, it's not snowing yet, it's getting kind of cool, but it's not cold yet. So that means it's the overlap of the football and the basketball season, and if you're a Bulls fan, after this New York Knicks loss, I'm sure you got a bunch of questions. If you're a Bears fan, you're just trying to figure out who doesn't have COVID. Up at Hallis Hall, I believe another staff member tested positive for COVID. Hope everybody at Hallis is doing uh, as well as they possibly can. Uh, Matt Nagy will uh, – and Chris, you can you can hit me to this because you know, your, your ear is close to the ground as well. But Matt Nagy, he's been ruled out of being a part of this situation against the San Francisco 49ers, right? Or if, am, I, am, I, am I overstating that? Uh, I think that's overstated. I think he still has to come up with consecutive oh, neg- negative tests. So I think yeah. that's still on the table. Uh, you know, it's – the the timeline's getting smaller though, you know. Yes. But there's but there's still opportunity for that to happen. But you know, Chris Tabor was out there today talking to the media, and you know, yeah. I, I yeah. think no matter what happens, I think Matt Nagy, it's going to be Matt Nagy's show. He may not be there in person, oh, but we're going to yeah. talk about it with JJ in a little bit. Like you know, he may not be there in person, uh, but uh, his his fingerprints are going to be all over whatever that offense is going to be, good yeah, for better I'll, or for worse. <laughs> you'll be seeing him sneak out of the basement with the Bobby Valentine mustache on, you know. Say it's just like honey, he'll have a wig <laughs> on top of his visor. <laughs> See, 
It's just, he's going as disheveled visor coach for Halloween. That's that's what he's doing. We shouldn't be having this much fun with it, but hell, you know, it's the Bears. If you're not going to have fun with them, they're definitely not going to provide the fun for you. Uh, it's, it's really simple for me with this week against the San Francisco 49ers, against the Wonderkin that is. It's the Battle of the Wonderkins. Uh, it's 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 Mike it's Mike Shanahan Kyle Shanahan who uh, they need a win. This is for both these teams. If you really look at it, this is uh, like a season. I won't say breaking uh, week, but you, you got some tough sledding ahead if you start out the season at three and five. Uh, not even start out the season if you complete half the season at three and five. So this is where we're at now. This is what we've been talking about with the Chicago Bears team, the offense. And for the last four weeks, Bill Lazor has done enough with the running game to make you feel like, okay, this team should be moving the ball. They should be scoring more points. But for whatever reason, the run game and the pass game haven't been synced up. Uh, there's not enough play action for my liking. And I'm talking about under center play action. The the RPO shotgun play action obviously isn't effective enough. And on top of it, we need to boil this play this play sheet down if there's things out there that Justin Fields isn't processing fast enough or if he's if he's swimming out there because his head is moving at one speed and his feet are moving at another and he's trying to you know diagnose what the defense is showing him pre-snap all that make the game simple for him this is a part of development that I I think we don't talk about enough as well you know it's not just the practice stuff it's the game plan develop them through the game plan Get some confidence in the kid. This kid has gotten his ass beat in the last few weeks, even in wins. He's gotten beat up pretty good. So boil this thing down. Get the running game to where it's supposed to be with Khalil Herbert and the boys. And also run some play action off her. Run some naked boots. Do the things that you're supposed to do that everybody – and I know fans – aren't the you know the end-all be-all when it comes to play calling a lot of people play Madden out there so you don't want to take their word for it but some things are so simple that even the most simple fan can pick up on what the Bears should be doing and as far as the 49ers are concerned that team's been ravaged by injuries since the Super Bowl appearance and since that Super Bowl appearance I think that Kyle Shanahan has understood that he doesn't want Jimmy Garoppolo quarterbacking his team but Trey Lance is banged up Trey Lance is even further behind than than Justin Fields might be in terms of just football experience. Trey Lance, what, threw like a couple of passes last year, if at all, for, for North Dakota State. I know he didn't play. So he's a guy that maybe you'll 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 see a package of plays for down in the future. Uh, you saw a package of plays for him a few weeks ago, and then he got banged up. They don't want Jimmy G as their quarterback. George Kittle is banged up. They got everybody on the injured list. Uh, if you can if you can block Nick Bosa, you should be good. I think this is a Bears win, to be honest with you. And I think it's just enough to give a lot of people hope for the Bears this season. Uh, I don't have much hope for them because if you can't score in this league, you can't win. I don't give a damn how good your defense is. And also, you've got guys who were practicing this week that were out last week. So, you know, Khalil Mack's foot injury, I think, is something that he's going to have to deal with all season long. And as you can see, the Khalil Mack wrecker, you know, the, the game wrecker that we've seen, that might be going by the wayside. Like, he's he'll, he'll get pressure. He'll get a sack. What do you get a sack? Like, in five straight games or something like that? He'll get a sack. He'll get pressure. But the, the I am the most dominant force on this field, Khalil Mack, I think you'll see that guy three or four times going forward out of the season instead of the, the, the eight, nine, ten times that you expected. And that's just what happens with injury. We saw it with Julius Peppers as Bears fans. He came here at the end of his career. He played well at the beginning of his Bears tenure. And then by the end, you know, all, all those cut blocks 
box and and and, and playing and all that trash, you know, at the line of scrimmage around your legs, it, it wears and tears on you. And then he went to Green Bay and they they put him in for spot plays and he was he was you know yeah I think he made a Pro Bowl with the Green Bay Packers because he had like a snap count, but. Khalil Mack can't be counted on or expected, I should say, to be that guy every single week. So Robert Quinn is is important. You know, Akeem Hicks is important. Of course, that secondary is important. The problem is I don't think that Jimmy Garoppolo is pinpoint enough to exploit your secondary issues. Right. Jalen Johnson had a bad game last week. He's got to bounce back. Eddie Jackson. All eyes are on him every time there's a run play that gets past the second level. Now, all eyes are on him anytime you see single high safety, you think it's Eddie back there, and the ball is in the air that you expect him to get. All eyes are on him when, when the tackles aren't made in the, in the secondary. So Eddie Jackson's got to have a bounce back game. That pass rush, I think, will be able to get to the quarterback enough. And the 49ers are just banged up enough. The 49ers can win this game because I believe their coach is better. But other than that, the Bears, I think, should have themselves not an easy task, but I think they should be able to beat the San Francisco 49ers to continue that hope and, and, and spirit in Bears fans who are just hoping and grasping for something that leads them into whatever this Bulls season is going to be. And, and speaking of those Chicago Bulls, Man, this New York Knicks team is uh, scrappy. You know, they're, they're tough. Uh, and they put a couple of guys in that backcourt who could fill it up when healthy and Evan Fournier and Kemba Walker. But the Bulls are going to have to do a few things here. They're going to have to figure out how small they can stay or remain because Patrick Williams went down after landing on that wrist, you know, awkwardly. He didn't play the second half for most of the second half. Tony Bradley had to play a guy that we haven't seen in the lineup or rotation so far this early season, but you're going to be going up against Rudy Gobert. You're going to be going up against Robert Williams. You're going to be going up against Joel Embiid twice in back-to-backs. You're going to be going up against a lot of length. And on top of it, the Bulls don't rebound the way that, that uh, NBA teams need to rebound to win games. Let's face it. They've won four out of their first five, but they've gotten hammered on the boards the last couple of games. So they're going to need some functional height. So it's good to see Tony Bradley get, you know, get a sweat in tonight against the New York Knicks. But it comes down to the Bulls not making enough shots, not defending three well enough, and DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine maybe not being on the same page on the final shot. Uh, Execution-wise, I thought Billy Donovan did a terrific job of drawing up a play, had the, uh, the, the wing side help. You know, and Mitchell Robinson out of the paint. Vooch was standing in the corner. So as as that dribble handoff is supposed to happen, maybe at the wing, and and Zach Levine turns the corner on Evan Fournier, it's a one point game. You put the 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 decision in the referee's hands. If I'm gonna get this contact, I'm an All Star player. I'm an Olympian. I'm an Olympic gold medal winning player. Uh, I'm Zach Levine. I have arrived. You're gonna call this foul. It, it didn't happen. Demar Derozan. Uh, I think he took a second maybe to diagnose the play longer than the play had, and he fumbled the ball. He said, you know, the ball slipped out of his hand, which is why he pumped fake twice because he had an open shot. If he would have just went off of the dribble handoff action and just raised up, that was his spot. That's where DeMar DeRozan gets paid uh, in the mid-range. He, he fumbled the ball a little bit, uh, and then he pumped fake twice. By that time, defense was able to recover and uh, put him in a tougher position in terms of making the shot. So it's not a game that I'm going to you know scream and rant and rave about, but it is a game that I think highlights some of the Bulls' weaknesses coming into this season that we thought would be weaknesses, which is rebounding and also uh, the fit, You know, trying to figure out who's going to hit the last shot, who gets the ball down the stretch. 
I would have liked to have seen Zach Levine have that ball because he hit the shot prior. And shout out to Vooch, too, hit a huge three to tie that ball game up. Uh, it was a furious 10-0 run at the end there. The Knicks kind of pissed away that game at the end. So, you know, Tom Thibodeau, I'm sure, wasn't happy about that. But it was a great night at the UC. It looked like a great night. Joakim Noah was celebrated, one of the all-time Bulls, uh, a dude who changed a lot of minds, namely mine. Right when Joakim Noah was drafted, I'll never forget. It. I was doing the draft show that night on on the score, and man, I, I ran in that I ran in that studio and said that this is a mistake, uh, this is an awful pick, this that and the other. I just didn't think that you know simply energy would translate. And then you looked, you look at his game for a decade, almost a decade in Chicago, and it was more than energy. He was a terrific passer, terrific communicator, uh, an outstanding defender. A really, really, really good rebounder. I mean, this guy finished, what, top five in the MVP voting, 2013, 2014. So, you know, Joakim Noah far exceeded my expectations. And, you know, who am I, right? I'm just an idiot with a microphone. But far exceeded my expectations coming out of Florida. But I shouldn't have bet against him, right? Back-to-back national champion with Billy Donovan and those Florida Gator teams. He gets drafted to Chicago. Ben Wallace and those boys put him in timeout because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do and he wasn't listening to the coaches. And he got he, the ship got righted very quickly, right? Because there was some there were some questions about Joe Keem in the first year. Uh, his maturity, was he ready for the professional game, these kinds of things. But, man, that dude turned himself into one of the better defenders in the game, one of the better passing big man that this city has seen, and and a dude who really, really cared about the community, the community cared about him. His Noah's Ark Foundation, his Rock Your Drop campaign, this dude was doing stuff in the city that a lot of people wasn't bringing cameras to and didn't really need to ask him about, and he didn't talk about, right? He just was doing it. And I appreciate him for that. I appreciate his free spirit. I appreciate his measured, thoughtful answers in post games good and post games bad. Spent many a lock, many a locker room night in there with Joakim Noah, and he always gave people the time that they needed to do their jobs, which I know y'all don't care about out there, but anybody who's in this business, we appreciate dudes and girls like that because they understand what needs to be done for everybody to, to kind of um, – live together in this ecosphere known as sports. So shout out to Joakim Noah on a great career. And I'm sure it was even a better life after that career because his Instagram is just is what dreams are made of, to be honest with you. So shout out to him and the celebration that they had on Thursday night for him with the Chicago Bulls. Shout out to 11-11 for the party that I wasn't invited to. My man Ahmed over there at 11-11 with Nazi Muhammad. Uh, but yeah, man, it was it was cool to see all the old bulls in the building, and on top of it, old bulls on the court: Derrick Rose, Tom Thibodeau, Taj Gibson, and the like. But the Bulls lose by one point in a game that I, I found vastly, wildly entertaining. But also, I think that game is a harbinger for things to come because I wouldn't be surprised if these Knicks and those Bulls are uh, are somewhere in, in playing playoff basketball in the foreseeable future. maybe If it's not this year, I think the Knicks are going to be a team that you got to deal with for the next couple of years because they got some good young talent. And, of course, the Bulls and Mark Eversley and Arturis Karnaschovas hope that they're in the same position down the line as well. So, Knicks-Bulls, man, it felt like the early 90s, late 80s again, and sometimes that ain't so bad. Time for some commercials. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey guys, this is Ozzy Guille, and you are listening to The Full Go with Jason Goff on The Ringer in a Spotify. Welcome to New York, New York. This shit is being taken over by a Chicagoan who doesn't have the inferiority complex when it comes to New York sports because y'all motherfuckers ain't won half the shit that we've won over the last 20 years. How about that? Go Blackhawks, go Bulls, and and fuck the Bears. I'm out. I was going to say, I can never <laughs> talk shit about the but That's the worst part. I can never talk shit about the Bulls because of all of the just tormenting oh, that they have done throughout my entire childhood. So thanks. Thanks yeah. for that. Bob. But you know, you know what it is though, JJ is like, we got a, a very quick dose of that with LeBron, right? Like year after year, you get kicked in your nuts by LeBron. Like it was like four straight years. The Cavs of the heat eliminated the bulls. So, you know, we know the vibes, right? When you have, you know, a Patrick Ewing like figure or, you know, someone else, you know, Jimmy Butler, somebody like that who's who's really, really good, but you know there's a, the boogeyman waiting around the corner. So yeah, Bulls fans Bulls fans know that feeling. The Knicks fans, well, not really. I actually was messing with my mom today because my mom came to this country December of nineteen seventy three and I was like, hey, look at you. You're the reason why the Knicks haven't won a championship in forty some odd years because when you came here, all that shit went out the window. Look at you putting all the blame on mom, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah, Look at you just throw mom completely <laughs> under the bus, bro. <laughs> that's how you're supposed to do it. Uh, Knicks Bulls, man. Like, there is no JoJo English. There is no Derek Harper. There, there's no fights. You know, there's no Anthony Bonner. There's no Charles Smith. There's no Charles Oakley. This, this, was, uh, this is one of those games, though, where they felt like the old NBA. Dude, like- I was stoked for it. I'm not going to lie because, you know, the Knicks and the Bulls, I was thinking about this. The last time I was this juiced up for a Knicks-Bulls game was probably the Easter Sunday Carmelo Anthony extravaganza, and he put on a show. That game was just absolutely bonkers, Jason. If the Luol Deng game. Yeah, oh, insane. <laughs> Where Luol guarded him on the same spot and I think three possessions mistaken, in a row. The Knicks were wearing, like, green uniforms, and I was just bitching about it nonstop. I'm like, why the fuck are the Knicks wearing these ugly-ass green uniforms when they're taking on the Chicago Bulls. But listen, dude, you know the deal. The Knicks and the Bulls had unbelievable games for years. So the idea that we went into tonight saying, your team's undefeated, the Knicks are off to a good start, was a ton of fun. Like, I had a little bit of butterflies and excitement saying, hey, does a Knicks-Bulls game actually mean something? And on top of it, it was Joakim Noah night, you know? So it's kind of like all those worlds coming together. Taj, Derek, Tom Thibodeau, right, on the on the opposing bench, all Chicago guys at some point in time. And then you got uh, Joakim Noah, who is a New York City. Like, the first time I ever saw Joakim Noah, even before Florida, was at the Rucker. So these are New York City dudes, and, and it's a New Even York- though he stole a shitload of money from the Knicks because... Because hey, he took a contract hey. and basically played about 10 games in the process. Hey, he didn't steal a damn thing. You blame that on Big Chief Triangle. On my management. <laughs> well, yeah, listen, the, uh, the Zen master, the Zen master who is a Zen master coach of Michael Jordan and Scotty Pippen and Dennis Rodman, not exactly a Zen master when it comes to running a front office and trying to put together a team. But, you know, I think you kind of got to adopt the Knicks somewhat this year. Okay. Because you got D-Rose. You got our dude Taj Gibson. See, there we go. You got Tibbs. Like... 
Do you look back, Jason, on those guys with fond memories? So, or do you look back with those teams saying, man, what could have been? So for me, there's a little bit more of a personal tilt to it because Tanny knows this too. My, my career uh, kind of took off because Derrick Rose got drafted. And I started going to Bulls games on my own accord uh, to get my own sound and bring it to the show that I was producing. Right. So that kind of gave me an in. And I started to get uh, not just in with uh, the, the Bulls fans, but started getting in with those guys and, and going to the stadium and going to some of the practices, but more so going to each one of the home games. So the Derrick Rose era kind of started uh, the the I guess I guess the uptick in my career where it's like, OK, proprietary content. I got to go out there and get the sound that I know I will only have, like interviewing guys and talking to guys. And, you know, we do the whole locker room scrum thing, but getting guys off to the side and asking guys to do separate stuff. So I am uh, in a way professionally linked to Tom Thibodeau and Derrick Rose and the ascension of the, that Bulls team, right, with Joe and all those dudes like Luol Deng, uh, hell, Kirk Heinrich, like guys like that. It, I look at those guys and when if I see them out or if I ask for them to come on a show or when I was in Atlanta and, and the, the Bulls uh, were playing the the, uh, the Atlanta Hawks and Derrick was coming out of the tunnel, like we, we, we hollered at each other for a moment after everything that has happened in Derrick's career and his life, you know, seeing him there with PJ when he was a Detroit Piston in the bowels of the United Center, it's like there's, there's something else going on for me and that team and those dudes. But yeah, man, when they were in Minnesota, right, when, when, when Tom and Derek and Tibbs was in Minnesota. It was weird to see it, but there's that familiarity because you know the battles that you watch those guys go in and out of every single night. And on top of it, the injuries. Like, there, there are very few sadder moments, I think, in Chicago sports history than when Derrick Rose got hurt that first time. And I, myself, and Agri Sam were on the baseline and Agri was working for NBC Sports Chicago, which I'm working for now. It's crazy. But we watched that and we looked at each other like that ain't good. That's enough. you knew it was bad, right? Yeah, like was, I remember watching that on TV saying, "Yeah, this does not look good." And Tibbs had him in in a game where they were up twelve. You know, people were like, "Take him out." He gets that injury, and since that moment, it's been it's been tough. Jimmy Butler is is just good enough to get your heart broken. You know, he's just good enough to get you there, and then all of a sudden, you, you the, the the big dogs come out on the floor. And shout out to Jimmy because he worked his way into the situation that he's he's become. You know, damn near a Hall of Fame NBA player if you look at the All Star bursts and all that other stuff. But that team and those guys and that group of dudes very special to me as a Chicago sports fan. So to see them come back and see them be like older men, like for for a moment there tonight, you saw a guy in Io DeSumo who was a rookie out of Illinois who idolized Derrick Rose, who went to Morgan Park. Derrick went to Simeon. He was on the court with Derrick Rose and all of Chicago is like looking at those two guys standing next to each other. And I, I tweeted it out like, we old because Derrick Rose is the old head. Tom Thibodeau is the guy who after the Bulls, a lot of people in the city said he would never get another NBA franchise because of what he did to this one in terms of running it running the players into the ground and also having the issues with management i wasn't of that feeling with tom right like he plays his players and it's as simple as that but seeing taj and seeing joe and seeing lou in the in the, in the stands is that that era of bulls basketball will always be special even though we've seen championships it's tough to to kind of remove that that much fun that much um fervor and positivity because they were LeBron's, you know, uh, nemesis 
it, whether it be with Cleveland or whether it be with Miami when he had the the, the extreme team with with Bosch and Wade. So man, it, it's 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 weird to see those guys in different uniforms, but you're happy to see them still doing what they love to do, which is you know be basketball robots. Which is exactly why Derrick Rose and Tom Thibodeau were always on the same page because different backgrounds, but the same dude when it comes to the game. I'm glad you brought up Tibbs because New York City loves him, Jay. They, and I wanted him in the absolute worst way because I wanted that connection to the old school Knicks. Yeah. He was a part of those old school Knicks. He was an assistant for Jeff Van Gundy. So, like, when he was out there a couple of years ago, I wanted him three or four years prior to that. I said, bring Tibbs home, make him the head coach. And you know what? The team gives a shit. That's the best compliment I could give the Knicks. They don't take nights off. They treat every game with like a sense of passion and yeah. pride. And even if they're flushing away like an 11 or a 12 or a 13 point lead, I know this is a team, Jason, and maybe it's because I went through a Yankee year where it felt like there was no sense of urgency, where mm. it felt like a team that was talented was kind of just going through the motions. Yeah. The idea that Tibbs has the team dialed in to play every single night I think it's one of the many reasons why New Yorkers have kind of fallen in love again with the Knicks. Hey, Bing Bong, right? I mean, Bing Bong, baby, <laughs> Bing Bong. Hey, by the way, man, I I can't I, I can't stop watching that. I can't stop watching. Were you the wondering, Knicks. by the way, if I was in the crowd, if I was one of the lunatics? were you? No, I was not. Oh, okay. I've not been to a Nick game yet this year. I got to get on that. I, I, I got to get on that. I saw a lot of you know skinny white guys who weren't very sober. So I, you know, I was. I was, I was gonna <laughs> say I at a Nick game that would fit the description more often than not. You know. No, man. I listen. This Nick team too is 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 Tibbs' specialty. Where it's like, hey, I don't give a shit what y'all do on offense. All right, we, we can play through Julius. You got a new backcourt. Just play defense for me. You can do whatever you want. And that's kind of how he ran the Bulls when he was here. You know, he had a special set of plays for Kyle Corver to get him open. He ran certain things that Carlos Boozer brought from Utah in his previous stops. Right? He 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 saw what Derrick Rose did in college. He was like, all right, here goes the ball. Go 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 enjoy yourself, right? Like Derrick was in Memphis for that one year and the CDR and Joey Dorsey didn't know that, that he wasn't the best player on the team till like the NCAA tournament. But D- Tibbs is is that dude where it's like and, and Will Purdue and Kendall Gill and I talked about this uh, during the game tonight where there were several possessions in a row where they just gave the ball to Julius Randle on a block against Lonzo Ball. And Lonzo did his his best, right? I think Lonzo's a, a more stout defender than people realize, and I think uh, Chicago's realizing that now. But Tibbs was like, all right. Even if we don't get the shot we want here, it's going to compromise the defense enough. You know, he's a good enough driving kick guy, Julius Randle, that is, and he found open shooters. Hell, they hit three three-pointers in a row where I'm sitting there like, wait a minute, what's the assignment? You know this team shoots 43s a game. Why are you leaving shooters like Evan Fournier and leaving guys like Kemba Walker? So I'm I'm in, I'm enthused because whenever, the you know, it's that whole whenever the Lakers or the Celtics are good, whenever the Knicks are good, whenever the Bulls are good, the NBA is better. I usually don't feel that way, but tonight, See, it I do. Different. I'm in it on felt that. Different. And not just with my team. Not just with my team. Because your team, too, for that matter. I love when the Bulls are good. Yeah. Like, that was a team that I grew up hating. So, like, the <laughs> idea. Like, now I don't have the same animosity. You right. know, it's a total, Michael Jordan's not there. Dennis Rodman and Scottie Pippen are not there. But, like, I think back at that nostalgia and those vibes. Like, yeah, I like the Knicks relevant. I like the Lakers relevant. I like the Celtics relevant. Yeah. Tibbs, though. Do you get the sense he's a coach? That's a program builder, but can't take a team over the top. Can Tib- Do you believe you watched him his entire run in Chicago? Can Tibbs be in charge of a championship team, in your opinion? 
if he's in charge of a championship player, right? Like you're only see as that's good. my thing. See, yeah. I'm with you there, Jason. Yeah, I, I think mean, it's all about the talent. Yeah. Listen, Derrick Rose was an MVP, and then his knee gave out. Yeah, he was never the same guy after that. So, like, I didn't look at your teams in Chicago and think they underachieved. It no. was more they didn't have LeBron. Really, simple as that. Listen, I uh, and, and Chris Tannehill can can let everybody on the call know, I I was. Uh, public enemy number one for a playoff series of two because I was aware of the dynamic, right? Like LeBron James is arguably, you know, top two or three greatest of all time. Whatever way you want to disseminate that argument and, and, and boil it down, fine. But everything that I said going into that playoff series against the Miami Heat that year, 2011, the Eastern Conference Finals was, yeah, their Derrick Rose is 6'8", 250 though. Right. And in the fourth quarter, Derrick Rose is being guarded by LeBron James. So if you have that player, your coaching um, blunders or your coaching deficiencies get covered up. It's as simple as that. Steve Kerr, I'm sure, is a terrific coach. He's got the greatest shooting backcourt of all time and then got Kevin Durant as well. Right. And when those guys weren't on the floor, we saw how, how much the Warriors struggle. So you're going to need a certain level of talent. I think Tibbs is a guy who. Players love to play for when they're winning games. When they're not winning games, he doesn't change, right? So he's hard. He's going hard. He's, he's, he's grading. You're hearing his voice the entire game. And on top of it, Tibbs is not the uh, most cuddly person in the world. So you're going to have to have a Tibbs-proof front office. We saw that here in Chicago with him. If you think you're going to have a front office down there, you know, trying to have their hands on things that practice too much or, in Gar Foreman's case, uh, wanting too much credit credit for the the job that was being done on the floor you're gonna have yourself an issue so I, I like Tibbs 20 years an assistant he picked his head coaching job he could have got head coaching jobs I think before that he was in Houston he was in New York he was in Boston like he's been an architect for a lot of defenses that have gone very far it was just his chance to get it and he got it with the youngest MVP in the league's history and Derrick Rose I if you give Tibbs a player a star player and let's face it they're only what four or five, maybe six guys in the league that move the needle where that player's on the team, it's an NBA champion. We look at James Harden. He's a Hall of Famer, one of the greatest scorers of his generation. He's not a guy that if he is the best player, he's going. you're going to be a championship team. So I think there are a lot of coaches out there that, that need a star player. I think Tibbs is no different than that, but I also think that Tibbs does something that bad coaches can't do, which is get the most out of guys, you know, eight through 13 on your bench. Tibbs got a lot of little guys. Guys, big contracts. Guys like and the CJ. Knicks are deep. Let's be honest, dude. They're running 11, 12 guys out there yeah. who can play a little bit. And that's going to help you over the course of 82 games. Um, your team, the Bulls. Yeah. I picked them as an under at the beginning of the year. I know. I'm really getting off to a good, strong foundation you of a relationship rally. with you, bro. You can rally. Um, listen, I just thought they were a little overhyped going into the year. Yeah. I'm a little bit concerned about the depth. I did like the Lonzo Ball move. I was in on that. I wanted the Knicks to get him, quite frankly. What was your take going into the year? Were you thinking the Bulls were top four team in the East, playoff team in the East? Like, what were your expectations on the Bulls? I was thinking more five, six. They had to stay out the play-in scenario. Last year was a failure. Let's just put it frankly. 
uh, when you trade for an, a second all-star and give up some of your young depth, the young core and Wendell Carter Jr., some other guys, uh, and draft picks, right, draft capital, which is what this front office said that they were going to build with in terms of developing players. When you take the swings that they took this offseason, you knew that this was going to have to be a four through six kind of vibe. They're not, they're not Milwaukee. They're not Brooklyn. They're not Philadelphia, even without Ben Simmons. So now you're talking about the Atlantas of the world, the New Yorks of the world. Charlotte's going to you know, make that jump. Miami went out and got Kyle Lowry, even though I don't think Kyle Lowry and Goran Dragic is a sizable enough difference for the amount of money that you paid. Um, I thought this team would have the inverse of what's going on right now, where I thought this team would be able to score a buck 20, a buck 15, falling out of bed, and they'd also give up 110, 115. What's happening right now is you're seeing how one or two players defensively can impact your culture. Lonzo Ball is a terrific defender, right? Alex Caruso is a smart and really, really good defender. Guy steals you possessions, not just steals with deflections and all that other stuff. And and then DeMar DeRozan, that was going to be the big question, the fit between he and Zach Levine. I think you saw some of that tonight. Uh, the Detroit game is something that I look back, the second Detroit game where there was a, a, a possession down the stretch uh, and and he pump faked a couple of times because that's the Kobe thing that he learned, you know, get a guy up in the air and get him off balance or get him out of your shooting square. He pump faked a couple of times in the second game of that uh, second half of that second Detroit game. And I, I turned to Kendall and Will. I said, you see Zach's body language just now? Zach, Zach's never been used to, well, not never, but he hasn't been used to the last couple of years having someone else that he can rely on. Zach would go for 40 and the Bulls would lose by three or four, right? So I think Zach was just getting used to, okay, it's his time now. And tonight on that dribble handoff that you saw, uh, these are the issues that they're going to have to smooth out. The reason why offensively they haven't performed, I think, the way that a lot of people thought they would is because you got six, seven new guys on this team. And Vooch has only been here since the trade deadline. He's That's going to take 40 in. or 50 games. Yeah. That's a great point. That's yeah. going to take 40 or 50 games to have a feel and have a sense. Yeah. Did you have a problem with DeRozan taking the last shot when the Bulls are making that incredible, insane comeback? And full disclosure, Jay. I had the Knicks plus one and a half tonight. Okay. When Randall misses the two free oh, throws no. and they call timeout, I said, not only are the Knicks going to lose, gonna they're going to bang at three. I'm going to lose this <laughs> bet when I'm thinking it's in the bag, basically, for three and a half quarters, bro. So, yeah. you, from a Chicago standpoint, did you want the ball in Levine's hands there, last possession in the game? Uh, I did, but this is why. It felt like DeMar DeRozan had predicted or premeditated that he was going to shoot that ball off of the inbounds because if you saw the play uh it was a dribble handoff most most dangerous guy basketball most dangerous guy is the guy on the inbounds because you can't guard him or you know you don't have to scream for him he's he's just running wherever he wants to run off of the inbounds they throw the ball in and you can see Vooch uh, bring his man, Mitchell Robinson, to the corner. So if you go back and look at that play, on the dribble handoff, DeMar DeRozan has Zach go around him, and Evan Fournier, essentially, and if you look at it, pushes, two-hand pushes DeMar DeRozan uh, to go because he thinks that the, the dribble handoff is happening because he goes under the screen. So in that moment, I think if DeMar won, would have taken one tick and just paused and, and surveyed the scene, he'd have had a drive. But what happened was, I think he thought there was going to be no switch. So he thought he was going to get a shot off. He pulls up, and you can see it. He loses the ball. That's why he pump faked. But what happened also was, 
he's supposed to hand that ball off if the play is, is executed properly and dig down. He didn't dig, and he didn't hand it off immediately. So what happens is Vooch's man can take that one-step stunt, which makes him not think that he has enough room to drive. So not only is he fumbling with the ball a little bit, but he doesn't have the spacing that he needs because he had he was a tick off from where the play was supposed to be executed. If he has that ball off, it's a one-point game, J.J. You see it. Mitchell Robinson is in the corner. The rim defender's over there. He's going to the line. Evan Fournier is a, a you know – He's not known for his defense, but he's an athletic dude. No, that's dude. being nice. Yeah, he's not, being yeah, nice. yeah, exactly. He's, that's being nice. He's athletic enough to have some defensive instincts, but he was caught. He was caught. He was. He thought he was ready for it, but he was caught. Nobody at the rim. I think Zach goes to the line. He's an 85% free throw shooter. You win that game. I'm not mad at it, but I do understand how it looked and how it came off. And DeMar DeRozan said, you're going to miss some, you're going to make some. He had to keep that you know, player uh, confidence and ego about him. But I think DeMar knew that there was, there was some um, – there was a lack of execution in the play that I thought was well drawn up. More wins this year. My Knicks, your Bulls. I think it's going to be very close, by the way. Yeah. Very close. So how many do you think the Knicks going to win? I'm going to tell you how much I think the the Bulls going to win. I think the Knicks win 45 games this year. See, I was going to go 44. Wow. I mean, we're in the right ballpark, bro. Yeah, I was going to go 44. I mean, it is, let's be honest, it's possible they could end up in that plane. It's possible. I hope they don't, but it's possible. I mean, in the East, though, like you're talking 7 through 10. We're talking, what, 38? 39 wins. See, I think it's going to be a little better. And I think the East is a little bit better than advertised this year, dude. I know. I I know. But this early, like, something's going to change, right? The Cavs ain't this good, right? Like, there's some teams who who are are, are Like, I saw – I went to the net game the other night. I saw Durant torch him. I said, well, I saw, I was looking at the NBA standings today. I said, Washington is 4 1. Yeah, they are. I just watched that team the other night. They suck. Yeah. I couldn't believe that they are 4 1. I was like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. The, the NBA right now is weird, right? The Clippers and the Lakers and the Suns are all bad. And, you know, you got, you know, the Bucks are just sitting in the cut waiting on everybody to come, you know, remember that they're the Bucks again. You got the Brooklyn Nets and James Harden dealing with the new emphasis on not calling James Harden fouls. You know, this is, it's, I will say this, and we're all firmly entrenched in our bad football teams in our respective cities, but this NBA season, if you're taking a glance. Oh, we at- need it. Jason, <laughs> let me tell you something. We need it. We need it. And I'm, a, I'm so I do New York, New York. You probably yeah. don't know this. I'm a Dolphin fan, so my season is also right down the toilet yeah. for that matter. Yeah. But talking about the Jets and the Giants right now is just like the most and, and listen, it's been the case for the last decade. The teams have sucked. Since Eli and Coughlin won that second Super Bowl, yeah. it's just like it's beaten so much out of me because it's like they're awful. Like your team, at least you guys have the young quarterback, the coaching staff is screwing it up. And it's like at least it's like toxic and fun. Right. Why teams aren't toxic? Because they're not fun, they're boring, and you're not getting a lot of change. So yeah. it's like you're 0 for 3 on that front, dude, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, people here in this city have coined it fun bad. The the uh, the Bears have been fun bad. Fun bad. For, for, not for, last week against Tampa, though. I don't uh, know if that was fun bad. God. None that of it's fun. fun None of it's fun. And now Matt Nagy's got, you know, COVID, so we're going to see if his playbook Hey, is- when you have COVID, normally that means your team shows up and plays big. <laughs> I mean, think about it. The Packers had all these guys, COVID, the defensive coordinator, COVID, they win. 
Then Kingsbury missed in Cleveland. They win. <laughs> Last year, Pittsburgh and Cleveland in the playoffs, Stefanski's coaching from a basement, and they go to Pittsburgh and win for like the first time in 30 years. So I don't know. Maybe you guys have a better chance of beating the Niners this week because your coach has come. Uh, I hope he's okay, but I, seriously. I was about to say, leave it to New York, New York, and the full go to uh, make light of a, a global pandemic right now. Yes, <laughs> listen. We are not trying to make – we are not no, trying I know. to minimize yeah, it anyway. Know. But, you know, people listen. Know. You COVID, you end yeah, up people winning know. football games. Um, you're not a deep dish pizza guy. Be honest with me. I know you can't be a deep dish over thin crust. Come so on. I'm not uh, a lot of people, of in, a lot of, a lot of people in this city. So I got New York roots too. So like my, 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 my dad first. See, so I have a little influence there. Yeah, okay. when, my, when my dad first came to this country, he lived in New York. Right. And my grandmother, um, it was many a trip to East Orange, New Jersey for me uh, back okay, in the day. I know East yeah. Orange. Yeah. I know it. So I, I go I, I go from Belize City. You know, I go from Belize, where my family's from paradise, essentially, to uh, Newark and East Orange, uh, you know, every 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 other summer. So now, nah, man, deep dish pizza really ain't the move for me. I, I'll try it maybe once or twice a year. Uh, give me tavern style thin crust pizza and we ready to roll. Don't, I, but I don't, I'm not with the floppy pizza either. Right, I need some. I need some crunch. I need some. I need, need a little some bit crunch. of crunch. Well, I don't like thick. I like thin crust. I yeah, want, I, 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 want I don't need the casserole. You know what I mean? That's good. I can understand that. Well, listen, don't be a stranger. You're welcome on this pod anytime, bro. Hey, let me and know. I need to get to Chicago. I was there for White Sox Yankees a couple of years ago. I had uh -huh. a great time. Now I know I got myself a tour guide when I'm there. Hey, listen, we we gonna roll out the red carpet for you. We are gonna hit all the spots that you need to hit, not the ones that you're being told to hit. Like not the ones where Fox shows you like the Bean and the museum. No, no, no. no, no. I don't want. I don't nah. want the touristy nah, shit. Nah, I nah. want. I want the. I want the. Uh, yeah, yeah. We gonna go somewhere you know? where we can get arrested. Put it like that. That works for me, too. That works for me. <laughs> Appreciate you, Jason JJ. Jason the full go Chicago. He's a rock star. He's a great addition to the ringer. And we'll negotiate the terms on that Bulls-Knicks bet, by the way, bro, because we got we to gotta think of something. Yeah, let's make it happen. There you go. Hey, Jason, that was fun, man. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you, dog. It's the full go, Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. You know, I think the biggest thing was, I think if a lot of us players knew at the time, you know, maybe we could have done some different things. I don't know what we could have done to, to change the situation. Obviously, Brad wasn't with us uh, after that year. Um, and uh, you remember hearing, you know, vaguely some different rumors, but nothing really too into detail what, what actually happened and why he left. But um, like I said, it was very vague. But I think you always have good memories from that year. And then now it's, you know, everything coming to the light, you know, that might maybe overshadow it a little bit. Yeah, I didn't know anything at the time. I do believe that everybody in that locker room knew about it, knew about it, knew about it.
Welcome back to the Full Goal Podcast with Jason Goff. I am him. I, I hate saying my name in third person. So you guys are going to continually hear me say that I hate saying my name and referring to myself in third person. But of course, we're brought to you by The Ringer. And of course, Spotify is the gang. It's time for us to take it to the ice. right? I mean, we, we talked to Seth Jones early on in the podcast. I say early on as if this thing isn't only like 20 episodes in. But we talked to Seth Jones early on in the podcast. And now we get a chance to talk to a guy that I have... Um, had on as a guest I, I i've talked to about the the old ice hockey uh he, he uh, does the madhouse pod uh with a with a dear uh associate of mine i won't even call him a friend because he doesn't deserve that jay zawaski shout out to jay out there no nah, he's my guy i know it's gonna hurt him a little <laughs> bit inside from him, him to hear that but no nah, he's my guy i'm just joking around but he co-hosts the madhouse pod with jay zawaski he is james navo he's actually the digital content uh manager and and, uh, and handles all things sports for us here at NBC uh, Chicago. So, James, I wish I was bringing you on to talk about some more um, sports things, some more fun things. Uh, that isn't the case. Uh, the Blackhawks have been dealing with this scandal now for a while, and it, seemingly it's come to a head in terms of uh, people getting canned, uh, people being moved from their positions uh, them separating themselves from everything that has occurred here over the last 10 years. Uh, but take us back to the genesis of the story for people who are tuning in from outside the shy or for people who aren't uh, fully up to date as to what's going on with the Chicago Blackhawks, the NHL, the investigation, uh, the video coordinator, a former player. Take us back to the beginning of where this story emanated from and, and where we're at now. Sure. Uh, to show my age a little bit, I say I'll do the uh, Reader's Digest version of the uh, <laughs> the story here. Um, the cliff notes, right? <laughs> right, right. This, um, this story originally uh, kind of came to light earlier this year when a former Blackhawks player, now identified as Kyle Beach, a 2008 first-round pick of the team, filed a lawsuit against the Blackhawks on the basis of them not investigating an alleged sexual assault that took place in 2010. This assault took place during the Stanley Cup playoffs. Beach at the time was what is called a black ace. He was a uh, prospect that the Blackhawks had called up. He traveled with the team during the playoffs and in the event of an injury. And according to Beach, what allegedly happened was he was sexually assaulted in the apartment of the team's former video coach, Brad Aldrich. This occurred during the playoffs. Um, Aldrich uh, engaged in what Beach called an unwanted sexual encounter, um, threatened his career if he didn't, quote, pretend to enjoy it, according to the report. And after this incident took place, uh, Kyle Beach reported it to Blackhawks executives, to employees of the Blackhawks. It, discussions were had among several individuals that your listeners may be familiar with, including general manager Stan Bowman, head coach Joel Quenville, former team president and CEO John McDonough. Several executives were in these conversations about the allegations, and ultimately nothing was done to further investigate those allegations. And what ended up happening was Aldridge was allowed to continue on with the team through the end of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Obviously, the Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup that season, and then Aldrich resigned from the team, but his name was still on the Stanley Cup. He still participated in all the parades, the parties afterward. And so what Beach is alleging is that the team knew about these allegations and then failed to act to either stop Aldrich or to properly investigate what had occurred. And then 
The Blackhawks, when this lawsuit was filed, they opened their own investigation into the matter. And that report is what came out this week and what ultimately led to the resignation of Stan Bowman and Al McIsaac and several other members of the team's front office. So where we're at now is trying to figure out who knew what and when they knew it. And like you said, the team has separated itself from everybody that was involved with this. Uh, You know, it's kind of like the John Gruden thing in a different way. And I'm not comparing the the email nature of the his issue to sexual assault, which is vastly different uh, and, and, and completely different ends of the spectrum when it comes to the heinous nature of the act. But it seems to me where John Gruden was allowed to resign, it was kind of like, to me, like a cowardly way of saying, that's still our guy, but you got to go. Um, <laughs> Stan Bowman having to resign or being asked to resign and then still being, was it the GM for U.S. hockey until a few hours after the news came out and then he was removed from that as well. Uh, how, how do you think not only the Blackhawks, but the NHL handled this, not only investigation, but the findings from the investigation? Well, to kind of go along with your point about resignations and being allowed to kind of dictate the terms of your own exit, according to the report, Brad Aldridge was confronted by the Blackhawks HR department and by their outside counsel and was told, look, you have two options. You can either resign your position or we are going to investigate what happened. And he chose to resign his position. So this all kind of started with them giving him the ability to kind of dictate his own exit. And that's obviously one of the more disturbing things about the reports. And in terms of Stan Bowman, he obviously has said all along that he would cooperate with the investigation. He had kind of hemmed and hawed about what he knew when, and that just is kind of a prevailing theme throughout the report, is that a lot of people don't recall exactly what was said or how the uh, allegations were brought to their attention. But at the end of the day, there obviously was either explicitly or not a decision made not to pursue an investigation. And while some have argued that John McDonough had said that he would take care of it and that kind of ended the conversation or whether there was actually an explicit mandate given not to pursue this investigation during the Stanley Cup final, something obviously occurred that prevented them from going forward with an investigation. And then they just never spoke about it again. And it kind of surprised me that the Blackhawks, with the way that this investigation kind of unfolded and then ultimately the release, it surprised me that they allowed Stan Bowman to not only resign his position, but then to give on team letterhead a statement that he did earlier in the week talking about basically passing the buck to John McDonough. It was a very surprising approach in that regard, and it was very odd that the Blackhawks decided to with an investigation that had supposedly been so independent to kind of let Stan Bowman dictate the terms of his absence. And then in terms of the NHL, they basically have allowed the Blackhawks to drive this investigation forward and to hire the law firm and to make the decisions that they ended up making in terms of termination of employment. The NHL has not disciplined anybody with this. Mm -hmm. They did issue a fine to the Blackhawks, but in terms of individual people, the NHL hasn't done that yet. And yes, they are going to be meeting with, Joel Quenville and with the GM of the uh, Winnipeg Jets, Kevin Cheveldayoff. But at this point, they have not disciplined a single individual. All of the discipline, everything else has exclusively been handled by the Blackhawks. 
What was John McDonough's relationship, not only with Stan Bowman, but the hockey side? I remember when John McDonough came on board with the Chicago Blackhawks and everybody who knew him from Chicago Cubs fame thought, okay, the Blackhawks are now going to kick this marketing uh, aspect into gear. They're, they're going to, to mm-hmm. show the fans in the city and the, the new fans that they're trying to cultivate that this is a thing that you should be a part of. we got two really good young players and Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves come along for this ride. But there was always it seemingly was always a, a separation of hockey people versus marketing people, whoever John McDonough was heading up. And then the Patrick Kane situation happened. And that was one of the. I'll, I'll say it, and I won't speak for anybody else, but that was one of the toughest times that I've ever had in this city in terms of trying to cover something, trying to give how you feel about it, but also this was in the age where everybody wanted to be first and everybody's screaming mm-hmm. things at the radio and at the microphone and the Hawks fans are angry and hosts are trying to get across that they hate rape more than you do and all the other stuff that was happening in the city. And it, I, I sat back and I was like, yo, this is, this is bad for that franchise because one, they didn't handle it the way I thought they should have with that porous press conference at Notre Dame uh, if I'm not mistaken that preseason game and they had Patrick out there Patrick looked horrible he looked like he had never slept throughout the offseason mm-hmm. it just it was a bad look but you could tell the clear distinction between the hockey people and the marketing people in that what was that conversation not conversation but what was that relationship like before this uh, was unearthed. What was the because you said Stan Bowman's um, statement kind of showed that he was pushing it off on John. Was there was there any friction or division between those two that was noticeable that people who covered the team were aware of? I think the thing you can say about John McDonough is that he has a very defined vision of how he wants to handle the public portrayal of his brand. And in the report, it is mentioned by a former Blackhawks employee that the brand was something that McDonough had supposedly stated that he wanted to try to protect when all of this uh, talk of a potential investigation had begun back in 2010. And there were a lot of instances in the report of people mentioning, like making sure to mention that John McDonough was very singularly focused on protecting the brand of the Blackhawks. I mean, you alluded to, obviously, Kane and Taves were the faces of this organization during that time. It was John McDonough's push that kind of led the team to put all of their home games back on television. I mean, they became a very fiercely marketed team during that time that John McDonough was in charge. And yeah, there was a good amount of separation between hockey operations and business operations during that time. But the thing you have to remember about the recollections of this particular meeting is that not only did John McDonough theoretically potentially say that he wanted to kind of back burner this until the postseason was over. Some of the hockey ops people were saying that as well, including Joel Quenville, who allegedly said that he wanted the team to focus on hockey. He wanted to focus on the on ice performance of a team that hadn't won a Stanley cup championship in nearly 50 years. Now this is obviously all the recollections of this are different from the people in the room. But the fact remains that, yes, John McDonough did tend to separate business and hockey operations. But in this particular instance, it does seem that they were at least somewhat in lockstep that they needed to not go into this while the team was four wins away from winning a championship. What else do we know about Brad Aldridge? We know what we know about Brad Aldrich is that he was the team's video coordinator through the end of the 2009 2010 season. He apparently, after all of this, he had been accused of this by Kyle Beach at the time. They had allowed him to continue on in his role with the organization. Reportedly, shortly after they won the Stanley Cup championship, 
he allegedly sexually assaulted another employee, grabbed them, did something very heinous to them, and it was brought to the team's attention. And this ultimately led to him having to resign his post rather than face investigation. And then after that, his name was put on the Stanley Cup. He had a day with the Stanley Cup in his hometown. He actually asked in the report, it says he asked during the meeting with HR if he could still have that day with the Stanley Cup and they granted the request. And then not only did he have that day, the employee that he allegedly assaulted was one of the employees the Blackhawks sent up to Michigan with the Stanley Cup oh, no. to have his day with the with the trophy. It was just those were a couple of mind blowing details that had kind of occurred. And I, I have a little bit of laughter in my voice because it's just so patently absurd that that yeah. was the thing that he was worried about during this meeting was having his day with the cup. And they granted him that cho- they granted him that his name is still on the Stanley Cup after all of this. And then afterward, what ended up happening is he worked for several universities, including Miami and for Notre Dame, and then ultimately ended up working with a high school hockey team in Michigan, where he uh, reportedly assaulted another player and was convicted and pleaded guilty to criminal sexual assault charges. He is now a sex offender in the state of Michigan. And one of the players that was on that team has also filed a lawsuit against Brad Aldridge and against the Blackhawks, alleging that they did not do enough to make people aware of what had happened during his time with the team and what had allegedly happened with Kyle Beach. The culture of hockey, uh, you know, as uh, as, a, as a young uh, observer, because I won't call myself a journalist when I first got into this this business, but as a young observer, you know, learning about billet homes and learning about, you know, the, 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 the foster care kind of vibe where young hockey players go all over, you know, the, the great north and, and mm-hmm. play hockey in these secluded, cold towns. And, you know, then you see the guys who come to, you know, the, the league and, and they're, for lack of a better term, a lot of them seemingly are robots when they're out there on the ice and when they're presenting. But, you know, I, hell, I've been around hockey players. Some of them can party with the best NBA, NFL <laughs> players, baseball players. You have, and yep. In fact, party better, to be honest with you. But uh, the, the culture of hockey and how great players or players for that matter are supposed to fall in line and supposed to stay quiet and you know never never put yourself before the team or never never i don't know never move around as if you you're greater than the go, the, the common goal which is winning uh do you do you think that fosters sometimes an environment for things like this because when we hear it it, it sounds really penn state-ish right it sounds really college football-y where you have these small towns that these campuses are dropped in the middle of nowhere and that's the entire population and that's the entire identity of a town and then you get uh, all the things that happen inside that town but you can't mess up the good you know the good record of the of the head football coach it, it, it's still it has that kind of vibe to it where you can you can foster a culture of this quite easily unfortunately and nobody know about it because of the stifling of the players well yeah i mean just look at uh kyle beach's uh recounting of what occurred on that day what did brad aldridge shoot to him did he threaten to physically restrain him not really he's only five foot six kyle beach is six foot three that kind of intimidation probably wasn't going to work. The report said he was threatened with a miniature souvenir bat. So that obviously wasn't it. What ended up really happening there is he threatened his livelihood. He threatened his career. He told him that he could make sure he never got to the NHL. And that is obviously something that, you know, a 20 year old uh, guy is going to take very seriously because Brad Aldrich 
had the ear of the Chicago Blackhawks. And then every instance that happened after that, where Brad Aldrich is continuing to be with the team, he's continuing, he's hoisting the Stanley Cup. He's at the parade. Jason, he was even at the banner raising in October after he had been let go by the team and had multiple allegations against him. He was there, got his Stanley Cup ring from Al McIsaac. All of the, what does, what does that signal send to Kyle Beach? What is that? That is, Mm. this is a made man. You can't mess with him. You can't win this. And ultimately, I think that is a very pervasive thing that happens, obviously, not just in sports, but in society writ large. And it is very prevalent in hockey that these coaches and these people in power could potentially use that power to do the types of things that Brad Aldrich allegedly did. And that's, I think, one of the bigger takeaways is that this is a very systemic issue. And I mean, look at the Blackhawks themselves. It wasn't just the Brad Aldrich incident. It was also Akeem Alou, a former prospect of the team who has come forward and said he faced horrendous racial discrimination when he was a member of the team and just always felt that they were never in his corner. And Kyle Beach echoed so many of those sentiments in that really brave interview that he did with TSN where he revealed he was John Doe one in the case. These guys did not feel like they had any place that they could turn to. And then even when they did, even when Kyle Beach turned to somebody he thought he could trust, the Blackhawks mental mental skills coach, that coach told him that the assault was partly his fault. I mean, if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know that this guy that allegedly did this is still with the team and a mental skills coach is telling you that it's your fault. I mean, what other outcome do you expect? These guys are absolutely, you know, feeling like they're just completely alone out there. And that ultimately is what Kyle Beach had talked about so powerfully yesterday. And I think what ultimately led to this being kept under wraps for as long as it was. How's the fan base consuming this? Because I know, you know, like I said, going going back to the Patrick Kane situation, um, fans were up in arms. There was a group of the fan base who was like, this can't happen. We hate this. This is not what, you know, sports or fame or resources should ever uh, afford you. And then there was the other group where it was like, hey, that's the Kaner. This is Blackhawks. This team is on a run now. Don't mess up the run. We believe in you. Um, similarly to what we saw with Addison Russell in this city where, you know, you, you're going to get your certain section of fandom who does not give a damn about the persons involved. It's about their investment in a team that they followed since they were a child. How how the fan base, how has the fan base uh, from your perspective handled this and kind of digested this new information? I think, as you alluded to, there's always that conflict between wanting to root for the laundry instead of the guy wearing it. And I think in this instance, what a lot of the Blackhawk fans are having to deal with is kind of a twofold issue. One, most of the people that were involved in this are now obviously gone. The only exceptions really are Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves. So obviously the people involved are different. And so they're saying, well, why should we take out, take this out on the people who are still here? But by the same token, those memories now from 2010, when the Blackhawks did win the Stanley Cup and they were this real feel good story, a lot of Blackhawk fans now feel like those memories are tainted and rightfully so, because I mean, look what was prioritized. Look what was lost here. Kyle Beach had this horrendous thing happen to him. And then basically it got shoved aside for the one goal of winning the Stanley Cup championship. And that's ultimately what happened. So I think there is that conflict. 
that those memories that are so happy are now tainted. And I think a lot of fans are definitely having to deal with that right now. I know there was a lot of empty seats at the United Center last night. Not many people were talking about the game itself. There was just kind of still this uh, shock, uh, this kind of veil that had been put over everything. I think that that's something that a lot of fans are going to have to deal with. But by the same token, there are always going to be fans who are able to kind of divorce the off-ice stuff from the on-ice stuff and are going to exclusively root for the team, for the jersey. And I've definitely noticed uh, people in both camps. But I think that like the Patrick Kane thing, I am seeing a very – conflicted fan base that is unsure of how to feel about that championship in 2010 and unsure what to think about their fandom moving forward. James DeVoe of the Madhouse Pod and, of course, NBC Chicago, joining us here on the Full Go Podcast with Jason Goff, brought to you by The Ringer and Spotify. James, you mentioned Kane and Taves. I mentioned Kane a couple of times now in this interview. Uh, how have they responded? What have they had to say uh, with the, the, the news that has come out over the last couple of days? So like the rest of the executives and the players that were interviewed in this report, it's still not exactly clear who knew what when. You do have several players, including Brent Sopel and Nick Boynton, who said that this was a very open thing that a lot that everybody in the locker room knew about it. Uh, Patrick Kane yesterday in his remarks, uh, by the way, still in COVID protocol, so did ask to speak to the media yesterday about it. In his remarks said he did not know that John Doe was Kyle Beach until yesterday. He Uh, expressed sympathy, obviously, for what Beach had been through. Um, And then he and Jonathan Taves both did something that I've noticed several other individuals in the sport of hockey do, including uh, Dave Tippett, the head coach of the Edmonton Oilers, Jeremy Colleton, the current head coach of the Blackhawks. They spoke about how bummed they were on behalf of Stan Bowman, that he had been a good guy that had treated them well. I mean, Patrick Kane lived with him when he first started playing with the Blackhawks. Obviously, he'd been Stan Bowman had been here throughout their tenure with the team. And just it was that kind of common theme among some of those folks who knew Stan Bowman, that they all kind of focused on him and how bad they felt for him and how if he could do things differently now, he probably would. And those types of things just really struck me as hollow and just as really insensitive to what had kind of gone on yesterday. And Kane did hit on the impact that it had on Kyle Beach. And he did say that it was the right move ultimately to move on from Stan Bowman. But for the most part, most of the people who reacted to this story yesterday, I thought spent too much time kind of worrying about the impact that this whole thing has had on Stan Bowman rather than, you know, the impact that it had on the guy who was allegedly sexually assaulted and then blackballed and mocked by some of his teammates. I thought that it was just, it it was very odd the way that some of those things were phrased. And I know we should never ever expect an athlete to be able to articulate kind of a point of view on a topic like that in a hundred percent, the right way. That's not a realistic expectation. I wouldn't think of anybody with a microphone in their face, but I still think they could have done significantly better and could have focused much less on the impact on poor Stan Bowman instead of what happened to Kyle beach. What has Rocky Wirtz or any of the ownership groups said about this? Uh, Rocky Wirtz and Danny Wirtz, obviously, they made it a point of saying that ownership was not aware of what had happened. The reports 
indicated that Rocky did not know about this when it occurred. He wasn't aware of the allegations until the lawsuit was filed. Danny Wirtz was not with the team. He's currently their CEO. He was with the Wirtz Beverage Corporation at that time. He only joined the Blackhawks fairly recently after the departure of John McDonough. So the Wirtz family has said that they were not aware of what had been going on in terms of how this situation was handled. And obviously that's going to spark a lot of debate among the fan base on whether or not the owner of the team could have possibly been kind of shielded by all this. But they've said all the right things in terms of trying to foster a culture of accountability and transparency. And that's the reason that they say that they wanted to mm-hmm. have this report put together and have this report released. And obviously they've made it very publicly available. I mean, there are links to the report on the team's website. They're not making any efforts to hide this at all. So I think that the discussion on whether or not they knew is obviously a fruitless one. We're never going to know officially. The only thing we can kind of judge them on moving forward is what they choose to do. And at least in terms of both the statements that they made, the report that they've released, and now what they're doing with the uh, fine money that they had to pay the NHL, they're donating that to local sexual assault survivor advocacy groups in the city. I think they just need to really continue to try to make something positive out of something heinous and not something negative, obviously. And I think that's ultimately what they're going to try to do. You and Jay are two of my favorite people. One, because, you know, you, you kind of teach me about the game in a way that, that it doesn't come off as like off-putting or like pandering either right and on top of it like I like you guys you guys are my two big cuddly teddy bears that I get to see around the city every <laughs> once in a while but how how has this affected you as not just a potter but a fan of this team because this last 10 11 years there's been some high highs but there's been some atrocious lows yeah. uh, and just, just some of the stuff that swirled around this team that is is maybe hearsay you know, like we all in this city know and hear about some of the things that have transpired. And, you know, you're like, oh, you know, I don't know if that's the cute and cuddly team that they were back in the day when I'll never forget Jay Zawoski's first time on air was when I was at Connie's Pizza and they drafted uh, who who's drafted first. It was Taves drafted first. Right. Yep. Yeah. Taves was drafted first. And then and Jay, I was like, hey, Jay, uh, I got 20 minutes to fill. Bring your ass down here to the pizza spot <laughs> and, and come talk to me about the hockey. And he did. And he and he and he did a great job and 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 I'm, I'm very proud of what his career has become and, and obviously found a great running mate in you to do the madhouse pod but how how has it changed for you as a fan over these this last decade all the triumphs but also all the stuff that goes along with it and boy was it a triumph i mean you went from a team that could barely fill the united center up with like five thousand mm-hmm. people on a given night i mean jay still tells stories about yelling to his favorite beer vendor across the arena and then just kind of like this uh this like awesome like kind of a sense where you kind of like get all your friends like into the sport i had so many friends who would come over to the house and i'd be like hey do you want to watch the blackhawks like this is a young and exciting and upcoming team and how thoroughly they all bought in and those memories from the stanley cup championship jay uh got met his wife hope and obviously went on a lot of dates to blackhawk games i got married two days after they won the stanley cup my guest book was a blackhawks jersey i mean of course (laughs) the, the the connections to the team obviously run really deep and that fandom runs really deep and it was this awesome thing to see them just like kind of rise from the ashes and become this like dominant force in the NHL and ultimately win three Stanley cups. And I think the emotions that we kind of tried to convey on our last podcast that we did about this situation is 
obviously our hearts are completely with Kyle Beach. He's the one who suffered sure. in all of this. Uh, you know, victims of sexual assault have suffered through reliving all of this. But as fans, we also feel a feeling of betrayal, I think. And then just how awful this whole situation was and how poorly it was handled by the team and just the complete lack of accountability. And you start to kind of think to yourself, all those warm and fuzzies that I felt when that team won the Stanley Cup and they were parading down Michigan Avenue on the day that I got married and the fact that they handed the Stanley Cup on stage to that guy that allegedly sexually assaulted someone and they went to all those lengths to potentially keep this from becoming public. It just, it really, it stings and it really taints a lot of really happy memories and the, the relationships that I've built through the sport of hockey. Social media has been just absolutely incredible Uh, This was right around the ascendancy of Twitter that the Blackhawks really started to be good. I met a lot of really good friends who loved watching the Blackhawks and we would obviously get together at bars in the city and watch games. And you, you create these beautiful friendships out of a common thing, which was the Blackhawks. And now after all of that, you're just like, wow, that those memories are so tainted, but obviously I'm still very grateful for those friendships. And it just is a very, it's a very odd mix of emotions, I think, ultimately, at the end of the day. And it's one that I think a lot of fans are going to – it's going to take us a while, I think. And I do include myself in that group to kind of work through all of that. Yeah, man. It's, uh, it's a tough story. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a tough uh, – it's just a tough circumstance, right? Because, like you mentioned – survivors of sexual assault and molestation and rape and all these you know heinous atrocities they still have to go on living their lives some way somehow piecing it together every day or now having to relive it and then like you mentioned other survivors seeing this and it it being a touchstone unfortunately with them so uh Mm -hmm. these these kinds of things man you know so many times in life you only get one chance to do what's right and there are there are too many times where we let ourselves down and people let us down so hopefully i hate to say this could be a learning lesson because you know this shouldn't be a learning lesson you shouldn't have to have this be a lesson nobody should be sacrificed for a lesson but hopefully people in the future not just in this city but around sports will understand that no piece of metal no piece of shiny jewelry is ever going to be worth someone's innocence and someone's life going forward. Uh, James, I look forward to talking hockey with you in the future, right? I look forward to getting into why this damn team didn't have a lead through the first six games of the season and all, all <laughs> yeah. those lighter subjects, but I appreciate you jumping on and giving us some background and letting us know the weight of this situation. And make sure you're listening to the Madhouse Pod. You know, James and Jay do a great job. The two of the dudes I respect, not, not, only, in this city, not only in this city, but as dudes. Uh, you, you treated me not but but good and i appreciate you man yeah as soon as i heard the words jason goff wants to talk to you i was like just tell me when man like you, you tell me how to jump to jump i'm gonna ask you how high bud it's always hey, a pleasure Joel talking Quinville to you man i'm never gonna make you jump without me jumping too much man the floor. i appreciate you today. i appreciate you, more of that chicago blackhawks investigation uh brad aldrich uh just scandal to to put it lightly um Guys are losing their gigs left and right for not acting when they knew that John Doe, number one, uh, who turned out to be Kyle Beach, uh, was uh, was um, sexually assaulted. 
by a video coordinator. So Joel Quinville out as head coach of the Florida Panthers. Stan Bowman and Al McIsaac out in the front office uh, of the Chicago Blackhawks. And this is a story that I think NHL people and uh, investigative reporters alike will be keeping their eyes on. But we'll be keeping track of it right here on the Full Go Podcast. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Coming up on the next episode of The Full Goal with Jason Goff. All right, that's all the time we have for this episode of The Full Goal Pod. We'll be back Sunday following Bears and 49ers. Make sure you hit us up on The Full Goal voicemail. I put it out there, pivotal points during the game so I can tap into whatever is going on in your sports. So 773-359-3103 is the phone number. 773-359-3103. Make sure you save that into your contacts. want to thank our producer, Steve Cerruti, and, of course, the man, Chris Tannehill. I'm Jason Goff. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Full Gold Podcast, brought to you by The Ringer. And as always, Spotify is the gang. Make sure, guys, you are out there taking care of each other and being safe. Thank you for listening to my daddy. It's the Full Gold Podcast.